got your Bible or a smartphone, some device, you'll be looking at the Scriptures with us this morning. You can turn to Luke 15. Um, if you haven't been with us before, or you've only been a couple times, um, there, there is more singing. Um, we, we save the bulk of it for after the sermon. Sometimes when, when folks are here for the first time, you see them kind of wide-eyed. When I come up after the second song, I'm thinking, oh man, how long is this sermon going to be? Right, But we want to worship not to, to get ourselves geared up to make it through a sermon. We, wanna, we want to worship in response to how the Lord has revealed Himself and shown Himself through His Word, where, where He most consistently and regularly speaks to us. Um, so we'll be in Luke 15 as you're turning or typing. Um, to get there, just a little bit of recap. Um, we have been working through Luke for not quite, but almost a year now working through this gospel where Luke is writing what he calls an orderly account from basically the, the announcement of John the Baptist's birth all the way through the life, the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, which leads into Luke's sequel, which is Acts, and the story of the first generation or so of the church. Um, and he's, he's looking to just kind of show this account so that we would have um, assurance and security and stability. I mean, as we've been working our way through Luke, we've seen Jesus um, healing, bringing restoration, bringing hope, having hard conversations, right? And, and we've seen that conflict is beginning to really pick up. That's going to culminate at the cross in Jerusalem. We're seeing the, the difficulty between Jesus and the religious authorities and leaders, um, and that they're not okay with Him. That they're, they're looking to trap Him and to do it in order to remove him, because he is becoming um, a difficulty for them. And so this morning, we're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, doesn't leave the ninety-nine in open country and goes after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. We're going to stop there for the moment. So at the end of chapter 14, right as Paul was preaching last week, if you remember in verse 35, it ends with, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Right? That Jesus is, is teaching some hard things. And what's interesting is we move into to, to chapter 15, that who has ears are the sinners. Right? That who, who is gathered around? Who is listening? Verse 1, the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawn near to hear him. And what were the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders doing? They were grumbling. Right? This idea should take us back. Um, to Exodus, where the, um, where the Israelites were in the wilderness. They've seen God rescue and renew and bring them out. 
And what are they doing? They're grumbling. Saying, oh, was better as slaves. And they've seen God do these incredible things and they're grumbling, wanting more. And so here, the ones who have had ears to hear are the sinners. Those who know that they're far from God while the religious leaders are grumbling over it. Sinners was simply a way of saying those who are either doing things that what no respectable person would do, right? Whether it was um, in profession, activity, sin, whatever it was, they were doing something that no respectable person could do, and so they were just kind of grouped with disdain at the lower end of the social ladder as grouped together as sinners. And Jesus is not simply having a meal with them, right? There is like fellowship, table fellowship happening, saying this man receives sinners. He eats with them. He's building relationship with him. And they're grumbling and frustrated, like why is that where his attention is? Why is that where his focus is? Why isn't it with us? This isn't what we expected. This guy isn't what we've anticipated. And so Jesus is actually going to answer the question that they're, that they're grumbling about. Why is he doing this? Why is he doing this? He's going to answer it with three parables. We've already read the first two. In the first, he tells the story, verse 3, he tells them a parable. And he says, we have a man with a hundred sheep. A hundred sheep would have been a pretty modest flock. Um, Three hundred was considered large. We know it was modest because he was actually watching over his own flock. He hadn't hired someone, right? So um, he has some wealth, but not a ton of wealth. At the end of the day, right, he's, he's looking, he's counting his sheep, and he realizes one's missing, and he goes looking. Right? He goes out seeking to save, to look, to find the one that was lost. And we have this beautiful picture in verse 5, and when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders. Right? He, he picks it up and he puts it on his shoulders, and he heads back rejoicing that he's got his whole flock together once again. And not only that, when he gets back, he calls friends and others around and says, let's celebrate and rejoice, my sheep has been found. And we quickly see that this is not just a story, but it's, it's pointing us to spiritual realities. Because I tell you, in verse 7, there will be more joy in heaven over a sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now what we're going to find this one is there are no righteous people who don't need repentance. Right? There are only those who assume they don't. And so he's telling them that there is rejoicing and celebration over one who was far from the flock being brought back into the flock. And a woman, remember, Luke likes to combine his parables, right, to show kind of a male and female version of it, reminding us that it's for a larger audience. And so a woman has lost a coin. These coins would have been worth a day's wage, right? It's not like she's lost a quarter. She's lost a day's amount of money. And a lot of the homes would not have had a lot of light in them. Some of them would have had dirt floors. And so you can imagine a coin being dropped, trampled on because you didn't know it is dropped. And it's not like you just look down, turn on the lights, and see it. You've got to look for it. And so she is diligently putting forth effort to sweep and to look. Not, it's not a situation where she's like, eventually we'll come ab- around, like one of the kids will find it or I'll find it. It'll, it'll, it'll come around. No, she is looking with effort and intentionality, lighting a lamp and sweeping the house and seeking it until she founds it, until she finds it. And then she too rejoices and invites others to come and rejoice with her. As, as we look at these, 
um, is we see the compassion of the shepherd. There were some passages that would have begun to come to mind for those listening. Because God is often referred to as shepherd. Listen to Isaiah 40, verses 11. Verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Right? This like tender, compassionate image of God like picking up and carrying sheep. But what's interesting is that the rest of chapter 40 of Isaiah is talking about the grandeur and the bigness and the significance of God. It's meant to say, this one who is great is stooping low to hold the shepherd to be tender. Listen, um, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands? Who's marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure? Who's weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? Right? It's saying, like, God is huge and grand and big, and yet he carries his sheep near and tender and compassionate. Right? He is showing us the heart of God. And then we can turn over to Ezekiel 34, where the, the shepherds of the people, the religious leaders, are being condemned for having not led the people well. Right? They are, they are profiteering off the back of their people. They're not caring for them. And if you pick up in verse 11 of Ezekiel 34, it says this, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples, and I will gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. On the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing. They shall lie down in good grazing land. It makes you think of Psalm 23. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. Verse 15, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. And I will bind up the injured, strengthen the weak, the fat and the strong I will destroy, and I will feed them in justice. Right? These passages, these hopes, these promises of God in the Old Testament. Now Jesus is saying, you want to know what I'm doing? Why am I eating with the lost? Why am I eating with sinners? Because I'm seeking out the lost. I'm, I'm fulfilling what God has promised to do in His Word. I'm doing it with intentionality. I'm doing it with conviction, with effort, with gentleness, with joy. The economics of these two parables don't make sense. Right? To lose a sheep and then to go and throw a big party. Right? To lose a coin and then to throw a party that potentially costs more than the coin that you lost. Right? Like the economics of it don't make sense. That's exactly the point that Jesus is trying to make. I'm not hedging my bets. I will go find the one. I will go find the one. Yeah, I've got 99. I've got nine coins. I will seek the one. Church, that matters when you're the one. When you're the one that's the lost one, when you're the one that's being pursued by God, He's saying, I see you and I care for you. And that same compassion and that same tenderness is for you. I'm coming for you, there are no lost 
causes. And not only that, I will spend it gladly and rejoice in the spending because it means you're home. You're where you belong. It's a beautiful image. Right? And it leads us to the third parable that begins in verse 11. This is one of the two most famous parables we probably have in Scripture, along with the Good Samaritan. We have the prodigal son here. Let's pick up in verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. and Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Like what a beautiful story. It begins in such a hard place, right? That the younger of the sons who would have um, ultimately, upon the father's death, he would have gotten a third, not a half. He would have gotten a third of the estate. The older brother would have gotten two-thirds. And he comes and he tells his dad, I want mine. I want it now. Father didn't have to give it to him. But basically what the, the son is saying is, I want to sever a relationship. Right? Maybe I'm not going to say I wish you were dead, but I need you to be dead so I can have what belongs to me. And the father gives it. Right? This would be, have been shocking. It would have been horrifying. It would have been insulting to imagine a young man going to his father and basically saying, give me what I'll get when you're dead. He's breaking relationship. And he takes it, and, and like um, what a lot of young men would do, he goes to squander it. And he, he heads out to a place where he's not known so that he can live any way he wants. Right? Not many days later, in verse 13, the younger man gathered all he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered it in reckless living. Like he is making um, his own choices. And he has squandered it and wasted it and spent it. But not only is he feeling the effects of his own choices, he's also feeling the effects of circumstances that we can't control. Right, And it says in verse 14, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. So if it wasn't bad enough, it's going to get worse. And so now there's not enough to eat. And so he's hungry, and he doesn't, he's spent everything he's had. Right? If you've ever spent time in Proverbs, especially the first several chapters, Proverbs is written as a father to a son in the first portion saying, son, don't be dumb. It's a warning about 
all the things that can come in life. Right? This son has basically ignored all of those warnings and gone out and now is tasting the consequences of that. He's at the lowest of the low when he has to go and work as a Jew for a non-Jew taking care of pigs. Right? An unclean animal. So he has gone against his family, he's gone against his tradition, he's gone against his religion, his culture, right? He is doing something that he would not find pride in, that he would find absolutely shameful, and he is most likely being mocked and humiliated by it because people know he's a Jew, they know what the Jewish people do, and they're just reminding him every once in a while, like, look, what, look where you're at. Like, he is hitting rock bottom to the point where he would look at what the pigs that they're eating. It's not only bad enough that he's taking care of pigs, he now looks at what the pigs themselves are eating and goes, I wish I had that. It's meant to show like bitter hunger, bitter poverty. And as God often does, when our circumstances overwhelm us, right? we hit rock bottom, there's a moment where we begin to go, maybe it doesn't have to be this way. Maybe it could be different. Look at verse 17. And when he came to himself, he said, wait a second. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? Right? He has this like epiphany of like, oh, maybe I'm not son anymore, but my father's a good man. Maybe he'll hire me. And he continues. So, okay, I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your servants. And so he has this thought, this desire. It can't get any worse. He's already at the bottom. And so he heads home. Right? And so we're meant to see the hopelessness, the desperation of this situation. And what is the Son dependent upon now? On mercy. Right? He's going back, right? He's not trying to justify. Right? He's not trying to clarify. He is simply depending on the fact that my Father is a good man and maybe there's a place for me. Even if it's no longer a Son, at least I won't be hungry, at least I won't be ashamed of what I'm doing any longer. And so as he goes back, you would imagine there's a mix of hope and absolute dread. Because the last time I saw my dad, I said, I wish you were dead. Right? And as he's coming up, the father sees him, verse 20, and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son immediately begins his rehearsed lines, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father simply goes to work saying, no, 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 bring robes, bring sandals, bring the family ring. We're going to have a meal tonight. Embracing the son back. A son. The son is coming, hoping to just be a servant and he is brought back in, set at the table and said, no, you're my son. Relationship is reconciled and it's restored. And we see the Father's joy and compassion, right? What Jesus is kind of referencing to us as the shepherd looks for the sheep, as the woman looks for the coin, we now see embodied in this Father, right, and His Son. The joy and the compassion of that which was lost being reconciled. That He's bringing Him back in with all the rights and wealth, significance, and relationship. And I love verse 24. And they begin to celebrate. Right? And it feels an appropriate place for the story to end. Except we have to remember his audience. 
right? As he's talking to the sinners and to the tax collectors, eating and, and reclining with them. It's the Pharisees and the scribes who are grumbling and saying, why are you doing that? And what he's showing is right the heart of God here in the seeking of the lost, the joy in one coming back to right relationship. And so he continues. Because of the Pharisees and the scribes who are listening, and he picks up in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked, what do these things mean? And he said to them, your, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. You've never even given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So we have the older brother who hears the jubilation, the celebration, and is like, what? what's happening? And when he finds the sources, his long-lost brother has returned. He's pouting. He's angry. He is, like, he is livid. And you can imagine this grown man standing outside being like, I'm not going in. Can you imagine the emotional situation when the father who is celebrating, his boys are together, his boys are back, and he's, he's restored relationship, comes out, and in the midst of his joy and celebration, he's like, son, what are you doing? Like, come see your brother. Come celebrate. Like, come be a part of this. I'm entreating. I'm pleading with you. Come. No, I'm good. And Dad, actually, I've got some things to say to you. How dare you? You know how good I am? Have you not seen me and my faithfulness? Look at me, Dad. You're doing that for him? He was a proud sinner, Dad. Look at me. What do I get? And in it, we hear our hearts crying out that we kind of side with the brother. Dad, you may have messed this one up. Because most of us tend to be either the proud sinner who has run off and squandered and has needed absolute grace and mercy, or we are the proud older brother who has served dutifully but has not delighted in any relationship, has simply done what was expected and asked and have been wondering when someone would notice. And so there is a warning here to the Pharisees and to the scribes. But there is also a warning to those of us who find morality easier than sin. Those of us who have been in church for a long time. Those of us who have learned how to be respectable people in the culture and society. There's a warning. Don't miss the Father in the midst of your morality. Because here He is outside and listen to what the Father says to him. Listen. All these many years, he tells him, I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command. And the Father responds in verse 31, Son, 
You are always with me. All that is mine is yours. What were you waiting for? You, we have been here together. We have, we, right? Like, what do you mean? It was all yours. But your son, sorry, your brother was dead and he's alive. He was lost and is found. The older son is acting as a servant, not as a son. Remember, the younger brother is coming back hoping to simply be treated as a servant, right? And gets brought in as a son. The oldest son has been there and has acted as a servant. That both of them have been proud in their ways that they have walked away from their father. He has been obedient without delighting, without his heart being involved, without relationship. He has sought to earn and to prove. I want you to listen. This is Paul in Philippians 3. I myself, in verse 4, have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Right? He is saying, I've done all that the older brother has done. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him, the power of His resurrection, I may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in death. Right? He is saying, I did the older brother thing, and I didn't know God. I want Jesus. And I will count all the worldly approval, all the worldly gain, as loss if I just get Jesus. Now listen, Paul then doesn't go and live a worldly life and, and sin ever the more, right? He continues to walk in faithful obedience, but now it's out of delight and out of cherish and out of longing for more of Jesus, not so he could say, look at me, I'm good, I am better than them, you owe me. But out of humility, he says, Jesus, I just want you. The rest of it can be washed away, I just want you. What we see here is a lost legalist and a lost pagan, both having to work through their, their relationship with their father. You notice when he says that he wanted a goat, that he wanted to eat it without his dad, right? If you wonder, did he really have relationship? He says, you, yeah, in verse uh, 29, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But what's his younger brother doing right now? He's celebrating with his dad. Like, you never let me go eat without you. I did the relationship was severed and it was strained and it needed restoration. Listen, in Ephesians it tells us that Jesus has torn down the dividing wall from both those who are near and those who are far off. Right? We can look at that as Jews and Gentiles, but it's also those 
who have attempted to be near, adjacent to the things of God in their morality, and those who are proud in their pagan, sinful ways. All of us fall into one of these camps. Some of us have successfully been both, right? Where we have been rescued from our pagan, sinful way, and then after a few years of walking with Jesus, we begin to feel righteous and pride, and we begin to think of ourselves better than others, right? Our hearts are incredibly um, deceitful in the way that they're able to turn anything into, look at me, look at me, and away from Jesus. And so maybe you actually identify with both brothers in this. And the question before us this morning is, are we, we need to check our heart. Do we rejoice when we see someone who is far from God come to faith, right? Or do we go, oh, them? Are you sure, Jesus? They're pretty bad. Or do we rejoice? Do we celebrate? Where's our treasure? Is it in your approval gained right in the world? Or is it in the fact that you delight in Jesus? That He is your treasure. That He is sufficient for you. What I love about Luke 15 is Jesus is meeting with people and He's saying, hey, I know you're not okay. This morning, He's saying, it's okay if you're not okay. But we don't stay there. Right? Like, all of what we see in Scripture is that He meets people where they're at, and then He leads them out of that. He transforms them in their repentance, right? To trust and to look more like Him. Paul lived a moral life, but it was in delighting in Jesus where he found significance. And we see the character of God on display in Luke 15. A God who pursues. Who puts forth energy and effort to come after us. It is why Jesus has set foot on the scene. It's why He's having meals with those who are far from Him. It's why He will endure the cross. It's because He is running hard after the lost sheep, looking for the lost coin, awaiting the, the pagan younger brother, and looking at the older brother who was standing next to Him saying, Delight in Me. Know Me. Enjoy Me. He is calling and wooing us back to Himself. He is pursuing us. He has not said, Hey, figure it out and get to me. He said, I'm running for you. I'm coming. Can you imagine the father here weeping, running out to meet his son? God is saying, I'm running, pursuing you. We see the tenderness of God, the compassion of God, that the goal of Jesus' ministry is for his family to come back to the table, to be delighting in him. And we are reminded that there are none righteous. All have gone astray. All. That He is imploring, right? It's why He said, I've come for the sick, those who know they need a doctor. Not for the well, right? But there aren't well. There are folks who are sick who believe they're well. There are those who are sinners who believe they're righteous. And He is trying to break through that and say, you're all dependent upon mercy to be reconciled and restored to right relationship with God the Father. And then when that happens, the danger has been removed. A reversal has actually occurred because we are at the table of God the Father. So what do we do with this? You know Jesus this morning. You rejoice in your salvation. You celebrate and you are reminded of what He has done. And as we look at this, we're reminded that God didn't come for the few or for only the moral or for only the wise or for only the rich. Right? He has come for all, in all situations, in all circumstances, in all kinds. And then we respond. 
And so for some of you this morning, it may be confession and repentance that your heart has become hard and you have played the role of the older brother longer than you would have wanted. It may be that you're hearing the Father call you for the first time and you believe that the Father is standing there with compassion and grace and mercy for you and that you want to receive that. But listen, for either side, repentance is part of this. Look at verse 7. Repentance is woven through this whole chapter. I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over a sinner who repents. Right? We then go, um, not just verse 7, but verse 10. Just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Verse 18. He tells him, um, I will say, I will rise and go to my Father, and I'll say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. And we see the same thing in verse 21, that in all three parables, there's a need to recognize our situation, confess and repent, and lean on the mercy of God. That we don't stay where we're at. We are transformed by Jesus. And then lastly, that we become pursuers. That we reflect the character, the nature of God by running hard and pursuing others who don't yet know Jesus. Not just those who are clean, who think and vote and look similar to us, but those who right now are far off. Right? They're, they're figuratively feeding the pigs and wishing to eat the pods. They're ashamed. They're far, and maybe they're even proud in their shame. Going, there is hope, and there is rescue, and there is right relationship, and there is reconciliation available. And so we pursue, we have meals, we engage with folks who are currently far from the Lord. Not so that we can go and find a way to scratch our desire to sin and call it mission, but so that we can go and point people to a better way and a better hope. Listen, there is a temptation to pull out of the world, to find a safe place and to hide from the world. But as Paul preached last week in Luke 14, discipleship isn't pulling out of the world, it's living in the world differently. In the way we, we think, in the way that we spend money, in the way that we relate, in the things that we seek and pursue, and the things that we don't seek and we don't pursue. That Jesus is saying, listen, the difficulty is, is I'm going to leave you in this sin-scarred, sin-affected world so that you can continue to point others to the shepherd who is compassionate, to the Father who is longing to restore and to reconcile. And so this morning, we have an opportunity to respond. We have an opportunity to respond by singing and worshiping and rejoicing and our salvation while praying for God to save those who don't yet know Him so that we can celebrate in that salvation and, in, and rejoice in that. It may be that you need someone to talk to and to pray with, and there'll be some men and women in the back of the room. It may be that you're hearing God call and woo, and you're going, does He really care for me? Does He really have this sort of compassion for me? And the answer is yes, but you need someone to talk and kind of walk through that. That's available. But we have also set up the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a reminder to the church that this, this rescue mission was costly. It just didn't cost us. That it cost Jesus His very life. And so we take the cracker, right, reminding ourselves that it was His body broken for our shame. 
And it was the Jews, it was His blood spilt instead of ours so that we could be made right. And so the fact is this morning that if you belong to Jesus, you have an invite to the table. But you needed mercy to get there. All of us are unworthy of an invite to the table apart from the Father. And so if you are a believer and you take the cup, if you take the bread this morning, would you celebrate the fact that God rescued you? That we would not be the older brother going, hey God, do you see me? Staying pretty good this morning. Haven't done any bad stuff this week. What do you got for me? We would be the humble, grateful God. You have rescued me. And I came willing to be a servant in your kingdom, and yet you have made me an adopted son or an adopted daughter. Praise be to your name. You have done it, not me. And so whether you take the, the table, you visit with someone, you sit and let the Spirit minister to you, you stand and sing, would you respond in obedience as the Spirit is leading you this morning? Let's pray. Father, even now the enemy would want to use our shame to remind us that maybe we are too far gone. Or the enemy would want to use um, our goodness and our morality to tell us we didn't really need as much mercy as that person sitting next to me. And God, both are lies. Would we hear the truth? Would you, would you blind our eyes? Would you, would you deafen our ears to the lies of the enemy that would seek to, to help us to find justification in ourselves this morning? But instead, would we go, Jesus, it's you. It's only you. And would we rejoice and would we celebrate in it? And then would we gladly live our lives as a way of offering it to others, pointing others to know and to trust you? Father, would you have your way with us now? In Jesus' name, amen.